Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. Second day. The second day is often very trying and very difficult, especially if you've never done a, a, such an intensive type of retreat before. Often the, the body is getting a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain is there. For some people also a lot of fatigue. You come and you think, oh, here I am, going to come meditate and feel so much energy and things like this, and you just want to sleep all the time. You're so tired, so tired. You're going, what's going on? I must be meditating wrong. I must not be doing it right. Something's going wrong. And really what's happening is it's not that meditation so much is what's making you tired, if you're feeling fatigue or tiredness. It's actually the rest of your life before <laughs> before a few days ago that drained you of all your energy. You know, you're giving so much to the world, so so lost in the samsara, just giving it your all, trying to achieve happiness in, in all the wrong directions, that it's robbed you of some of your energy. So when you come here, something inside, not your conscious mind, but something inside goes, now I have some time to rest and rejuvenate. So what's actually happening is inside the brain is doing some tremendous, tremendous uh, processing right now, both on a psychological level, whereby you're experiencing all of what's going on inside, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and even on a more practical, mundane level, neurological level, the brain is going massive transformations as the neurons and all the different chemicals inside your brain are readjusting to a more natural way of life and a more natural way of being. So the chemical changes going on in the higher glands of the body, pineal, pituitary, you know, all of your, your neurochemicals, things like serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, all of these things are totally reconfiguring and coming more into a better hormonal balance. But that takes a lot of energy generating new hormones and fresh hormones and bringing that endocrine system into balance is takes a massive amount of life force and because of that you're probably feeling sometimes really tired and really sleepy and really kind of drained but it's mostly just because your body's using this opportunity this very very short window that it knows it has in order to rejuvenate and usually it only takes two or three days usually on the fourth day most people are kind of like you know, really perky and energetic and the mind has found clarity. And just only in these first few days where the difficulties may arise due to fatigue. And then the difficulties relating the discomforts of the body, mostly because we're not used to sitting in one position for so long. Body's resistant, doesn't like it, no? Pains in the knees and the back and the chest, shoulders, head, wherever you, you can feel pain, you'll probably feel it eventually as you meditate. Um, and this is just a natural unfoldment in the same way that people that are, are you know, like high caliber, you know, high performance individuals, like people like celebrities and people like world class athletes or Olympians and people of this quality, in order to live at that like peak performance level, they need to train, they need to do a lot of regulation and they actually live a very, very strict lifestyle on some level. They have a lot of liberties on some levels, but their training is vastly um, underappreciated by people that don't live like they do. And there's a reason why they're so wealthy and famous and blah, blah, blah. It's simply because of the power of their mind and their lifestyle. 
diet is very regulated, sleep is often very regulated, um, and then all the training and all the conditioning that's required on a physical level is also very, very intense. People pay thousands and thousands of dollars to personal trainers and to have all this high-tech equipment and, and whatnot. And it's that daily training that really gives them the, the bodies, the physiques, the, everything that they need in order to excel and succeed and whatever. Uh, realm of life they're, they're wanting success in. Now for us as yogis, we also are working at those high performance levels, but for us the focus isn't so much as of, of just working on the physical body level, even though that's what most people in the modern age associate yoga with, it's a small part of it. And we need to have strong bodies, we need to have healthy bodies, and we need to train the body. But more than training the body and developing this you know, healthy physique, what we're trying to do is we're trying to not achieve some sort of outer success and become famous or get name and wealth and all of this stuff. We're actually trying to do something so much more noble. We're trying to awaken the highest potential of the human heart within ourselves. And that requires a certain kind of mental training, kind of mental attitude that um, requires the practice of meditation as one of its greatest aids in developing higher levels of awareness and entering altered states of higher consciousness. And for that, we require the body to cooperate. So we have to train the body. We have to do asana. We have to do as many asanas as we like in whatever way is comfortable for you as you've learned it from your teachers. But ultimately, we also have to understand that the objective of doing all these hundreds of different asanas is really so that we can take one asana and be still inside of it for long periods of time until the body begins to cooperate. Because for the great spiritual work that we're doing, there's a lot of energetic, a lot of subtle energetic um, processes that are going beyond. The chakras are aligning, the chakras are purifying, the energy channels called nadis. They're readjusting and they're, they're allowing for the free flow of prana through the subtle body. Many things are there. And in order for this process to a purification on an energetic level to take place, the body must be still. So long as the body is in motion and in movement, uh, the, the alignment, the energetic integration that we're uh, looking for as as yoga as yogis is is isn't isn't capable of taking hold. So the body must become very still and very very um, quiet for long periods of time. And simply because we're not used to making the body still, most of us have such an agitated mind that we actually can't control our body very well. And the body is constantly twitching, it's constantly moving, it finds just agitation, just trying to hold one position because we don't have that power of mind to control the nervous system, to control the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. The mind, the neurons in the brain have never worked they haven't flexed those kinds of neurological muscles in order to make the body uh, cooperate. And because of this, the body is resisting. But right now what we're doing, just by sitting here and forcing ourselves to be still for long periods of time, is we're beginning to flex some of those brain muscles, as it were, and making the brain stronger so that we can develop greater control over our, our nervous system. And so that the body can learn to, to be comfortable and get accustomed to sitting for long periods of time. Initially, this is very terrible work. Nobody likes it. It's so painful, so difficult. You feel, well, I have come halfway around the world just to sit here and suffer. <laughs> my knees, my knees, my back, my back. Something, something's always bothering. You know, can't sit still for more than five minutes without something going on. 
event. And this is just the process of training in the same way a celebrity or an athlete or somebody like this would go to the gym and they'd have to, you know, flex and go on bikes and go on treadmills. So they're sweating and their muscles are burning and things like this. That kind of intensity is also what we're practicing in a slightly different way. We're just learning and training the body to rather than just, you know, have all the strength that it's using in an external way through running or gymnastics or whatever, just to simply sit still in one position and there's this certain level of initial discomfort that you have to experience until the body simply gets used to it. Now, the pain never really goes away in a conventional, ordinary sense. Those pains that we're feeling inside the knees, the back, the shoulder, heart, head, wherever we may feel it, are actually a reflection or a manifestation of negative karma. They're psychological traits, psychological patterns that we call samskaras, which are habitual ways of perception, both positive and negative. When we feel pain and discomfort, they're largely negative um, mind states that have been trapped because of the mind-matter um, integration, because of the way that mind and matter intersync, what people call like the body-mind connection, how those two forces coincide, the body will manifest physiologically certain mental emotional states and as we're sitting for meditation we're experiencing great sorrow great suffering great pain inside the spine or inside the knees or, or the belly or the heart simply we eventually need to come to terms with the fact that this is of our own making so this wasn't you know this isn't being imposed on us by anybody but this is just a manifestation of karma which is manifesting a subtle energy being trapped or being blocked in such a way that the free flow of prana, the free flow of energy is obstructed. And substruction feels physiologically very, dis, you know, very, very uh, uncomfortable. Sometimes we feel sharpness, sometimes we feel heat, sometimes we feel great pressure, sometimes we feel piercing sensation, cold sensation, electric sensation, tingling sensation, vibrating sensations. Some things are very gross and very difficult, or other times we'll be sitting in meditation for no real um, uh, effort on our part. All of a sudden we'll feel some pleasantness inside the body. Maybe the heart all of a sudden starts, you know, having some pleasant sensation. Maybe all of a sudden some something feels like it's happening inside the leg or the knee or the or the foot or any part of the body really. And these positive sensations are a sign of progress. We need not try to cultivate them. We need not try to induce them artificially. By simply practicing the twofold method of awareness, developing awareness of our meditation object, whether it's the breath, mantra or self-inquiry or any other technique that works for you and simultaneously cultivating detachment which is the quality of learning to let go and to renounce um, all distractions that prevent you from maintaining single-pointed awareness upon your meditation object by simply cultivating awareness and detachment energy the prana the subtle energy of the body will naturally through its own intelligence, without any willful, willful, willful effort on the part of the 
of our egos to do anything will align itself and will open itself and will balance itself in whichever way is most natural, most appropriate. The tendency is for the, the, the sensations and the process of meditation to take us from intense grossness to ultra, 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 ultra subtle states. These ultra subtle states are going to be experienced on a physiological level as all sorts of very pleasant and pleasurable sensations, things that are hard to describe in words, but more as sensations that are more subtle, more like feelings of openness and vibration and tingling and electric currents of very, very blissful and very intoxicating um, motions of energy as it moves through. But to get there, we need to do the hard work of getting rid of all the other stuff that's obstructing the free flow of energy. And that difficulty will, will initially occur as all these different pains that we feel in the body. And ultimately, even though we may feel like my knee is hurting, it's not really the knee that's the problem. It's actually the energy, the subtle prana, that can't flow properly there and is being trapped there. And it's manifesting as an, an abundance of, of, of a certain elemental vibration. If you feel great pressure there, it's too much earth element is stuck there. The atoms, the subtle molecules of the body, and which have an elemental quality, are just too jam-packed together and it's giving this feeling of intense gravity, great pressure, great stagnation. If you feel a lot of heat or a lot of piercing sensation, an abundance of the fire element is there. This feeling of heat, of piercing, of, of, of these sorts of sensations are there. Different, different sensations arise that all have elemental qualities. And this is part of the secret science of yoga and how the sensations of the body correlate to the breathing patterns of the body and how those actually correlate to vibrational motions in the quantum molecular structure of the body-mind. So there's a lot that goes on in our meditation practice. But right now, just know you have to bear with us. You know, usually second day, very hard. The body's feeling all these unusual sensations and it wants to get rid of them. But so long as you're running away from these unpleasant sensations, trying to avoid them, trying not to experience them, then the hard work of meditation is being obstructed. Because rather than generating what we call equanimity, which means this quality, this mental virtue or, or higher faculty of non-reactivity, whereby you remain equanimous or balanced in the face of, of positive and negative sensations, in the face of pleasure and pain, whenever you encounter anything rather than habitually reacting to it, so you can train yourself to see what it's like, to stay and just simply be aware of those sensations without trying to run away, without trying to push them out and trying to accumulate or have some sort of pleasant, desirable sensation, then you are actually in this way purifying a certain kind of your karma. Whatever that karma is in the knee or in the back or in the spine or the chest or wherever you have it, whatever that negative sensation is, so long as you're running away from it, you're not really able to confront it directly. And that's what meditation teaches us, how to directly confront all that is within us and develop a way of perception, a way of seeing our life and the circumstances of our inner psychological tendencies in such a way that we can effectively purify, effectively let go of all these patterns that no longer serve us and don't serve others. So 
even though you may not be aware of exactly what psychological trait you're working on, whatever trauma, whatever healing, whatever mental, emotional state that is trapped in that part of the body, know that it doesn't ultimately matter. Our job as yogis isn't to try to understand all of these things through the intellect or some psychoanalytical process. It actually doesn't matter what it is that's being purified, whatever sensation is locked or trapped in the energy body. And trying to label it and name it and trying to develop insight into exactly what it is is actually impossible. All of that karma, all that the effect that we're feeling, let's say it's pain in the knee, that pain in the knee isn't the outcome of just one single cause like some event or some trauma or some difficulty you had in your life or some one mental state that you're undergoing so many millions of different causes that have come into effect that have caused that particular sensation that we now feel as the effect the cause and effect relationship of pain or discomfort or sorrow or emotional grief or whatever it is that we're feeling at any given time during our life and during our practice. Our work isn't to try to understand that effect, what the cause of that effect is psychologically and try to name and label and say, oh, it's this thing that's causing this. It's actually impossible. Karma is such a vast field, interplay of different forces that in order for this one effect to manifest, Countless causes are there that have brought it into fruition. So our job isn't so much to try to understand and intellectually map out exactly what the what may be the cause there. Our work is just to maintain presence of mind, develop awareness of those sensations, and then simultaneously detach from them. Not get stuck in the stories and the thoughts and the moods and the ideas that surround them and just continually come back to the object of meditation. And this is much easier said than done, as I'm sure you now know after a few days of difficult meditation. But that's the basic philosophy, and this is the ideal, and we do our best with that ideal, knowing that that's kind of the direction we should be pointing in. And then whenever the difficulty or the pain or the sorrow or the, or the tension or the stress in the body becomes too difficult to handle, then we release. We don't want to push ourselves to like this, you know, like insane level of, you know, masochistic type of pain tolerance level. That's not our particular path. There are some traditions in meditation that really take this approach. Certain Vipassana schools, certain Buddhist schools really use the pain body as the gateway to, to realization. However, that's generally not our, uh, not our approach. But still, the pain body occasionally manifests. And when it does, we need to develop skillful ways of understanding how to manage it. Now, the good news is, is after a few days, the pain body will become a little bit less pronounced. And the bliss body and other different aspects of the spiritual life will will manifest itself and then you can enjoy some of those subtle sensations knowing all the while that whenever you feel all this pleasant stuff in meditation the work is the same you know, awareness, detachment you know, often young spiritual seekers, young meditators are yearning so deeply for experiences right? we want to have some inner experience of some chakra or some light that we see or some, some divine sight or, or whatever it is for you or, or oftentimes because we've had certain meditative experiences in the past that were very pleasant we kind of think that that's the goal or that's the path and we're trying to relive or re-kind of we live basically those experiences again and again and that's again a subtle trapping of the mind the spiritual path doesn't really unfold like that meditative spiritual experiences are rarely identical 
almost never there's so much variety that goes on in the inner life that just because you've had one experience the chance of you having it in the same way again is is very very little and even when you do have it in a similar way there's some differences are there so it's really important that when we're having positive experiences that we don't cling to them clinging to positive sensations positive you know meditative states very dangerous actually because then you get in this conceptual cycle of thinking ah that's the path that's the way and you're constantly trying to change what you're experiencing to conform to your idea of what you should be experiencing in meditation or what you'd like to experience in meditation and this is the same old like dislike pattern all the desires um, coming out through the mind and the subtle trappings of the mind manifesting so we learn they call the time detachment and awareness detachment and awareness this is the this is the path this is the way to liberation eventually you'll become so hyper aware and so detached that the real spiritual life begins to take over and meditation starts doing itself without you needing to strive and struggle so hard to maintain awareness and to cultivate detachment this just becomes part of just like this this perpetual letting go and this perpetual state of, of consciousness that you're just floating through as it were again easier said than done and this is just part of the life and, and it's like this the journey yeah. even people that have been meditating 20 30 40 years it's still this. You know, some days meditation is really high and really good, other times it's very difficult, but the general trajectory is a little bit like this, onwards and upwards. So that being said, hope you understand at least a little bit more about meditation. I'd like to share with you a few teachings today that will also that will continue in the same vein we were talking about yesterday yesterday i was trying to impress upon you the importance of having very noble motivation in your practice and not to limit your practice just to using it as a personal tool of transformation or as a personal way of developing some inner mental peace some transitory you know you feel stress i need a little bit of inner peace for myself so i can feel balanced but really to open up the field of motivation so that you can really understand that your personal practice is actually of great benefit to all living beings and one very simple way that you can develop this kind of attitude is by using a small kind of affirmation or dedication at the beginning of your practice whereby before you sit maybe if you do sankalpa if you do prayers if you do uh, gratitude all wonderful some people like to use this motivation as the base of their of their intention of their practice and in any language pattern that makes sense to you you can just um cultivate this attitude that may all living beings benefit from my practice. May I practice the noble art of meditation for the benefit and the welfare of all living beings. And just that little, little mindset, just that little sentence or those few words, if they're done uh, with enthusiasm and sincerity, more importantly, at the beginning of the practice, really helps so much. Mother Nature's forces the force of dharma begins to become very close to you, attracts itself to you. This not only works on a you know, kind of abstract level, but also on a very, very tangible level. If any of you work with, with uh, spirit guides or angelic beings and, and are aware of the, you know, all these divine beings that help maintain harmony in this world system, by developing this altruistic intent inside of your practice, all your invisible friends begin to really take note 
that there's something special happening inside your mind stream. And because of that, you have a lot more support, not only in your day-to-day practice, but in your life as a whole, as your life becomes more focused on service and giving to others. So it's a very, very powerful catalyst, and it's very, very simple. It's the heart of much of uh, the Tibetan training, if anybody's learned a little bit about Tibetan Buddhism. This cultivation of compassion as a motivating force in practice is so essential to their meditation practices, and we've also found it to be a very, very great use for ourselves. So having established that compassion is really the utmost act of meditation is the utmost act of compassion, then we can use it as a great motivating force inside of our practice. Now, having developed that motivating force behind of our practice, and now made meditation such a personal, individual thing, but a thing that is for the welfare of the whole, it also becomes important to frame our dharma practice, our meditation practice, in such a way that we're really utilizing all of our life, all of our energy, and developing great enthusiasm for the practice. Because if we kind of come to our meditation seeing we're a little bit sluggish, a little bit tired, a little bit forgetful, you know, sometimes there isn't enough energy, not enough enthusiasm in order to maintain a more dedicated and a deeper practice. So for this, it's very, very useful to reflect on the human condition. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to do what in old school yoga we call Swadhyaya. For those of you that learned about Patanjali's yoga system, the Eightfold, Eightland Yoga, you know that in the Niyama section, the, the, the training in personal uh, discipline, we have this one um, theme that is known as Swadhyaya, which means reflection. And there's so many different objects that we can take for, for reflection. Today, we'll just do some deep reflection upon life and death. And we'll talk largely about the preciousness of human life and the certainty of death. So we're going to be using the exciting and wonderful theme of death as a motivating practice in our, in, in, in our pursuit of dharma. <coughs> and the reason we're doing this is because in our culture, particularly death, is not well addressed. And most of us are, are avoiding themes of death. And even when death is presented to us, it's kind of like locked away in like old folks' homes. And it's outside the realm of conventional, everyday experience. When you come to Asia and you go to a place like India, wow, is death ever a, a, a great teacher for you? Because in places where there's a lot of poverty, Death is an inescapable part of life, and it's not something that is hidden away because simply there isn't a financial abundance to be able to put people in hospitals and hide them away in old folks' homes as they get older. It's just a really vivid part of life as you see people on the streets everywhere, the homeless, and just thousands and thousands. Wherever you go, there's always homeless people in your wake, many of them very ill. Many of them are quite old and on the verge of, of, of leaving their bodies. So much life teaches us when we travel and we escape our normal confines of life. So we'll be using just a little bit of the, some of the themes of death as a motivating force in our practice so that we can begin to utilize our energy while we're still alive in the most important ways. So the objective of these reflections are to begin to recognize the qualities of what we call a perfect human birth. Because, whether you've thought about it or not, not all human birth is created equal, and not all human birth is ideal. 
we want to also begin to understand the rarity and the value of our life and to generate great joy and great gratitude for having attained a near-perfect human rebirth. One of the things that many Western people struggle with in meditation, and we all do it, is, is complete lack of gratitude. We feel like we have so many problems, you know? We have so much, so many problems. And when we come and we sit for meditation, unless we develop great gratitude, as, as a positive mind state at the beginning of our practice, so much of meditation just spent rummaging and processing all the things that we don't have. And we feel like we're missing this and missing that. We don't need, because we've been entrained to feel like we need more and more and more in our consumer culture, our capitalistic culture. The values of our society always make us feel less than complete and like we need more of something in order to feel full. And when we bring that attitude to our meditation, you know, we feel like such a lack. We feel like well, so many problems, so many problems, so many problems. But when we can generate just a little bit of gratitude, just to focus on all the things that you do have, basic things, you have food, you have shelter, you have family, you have education, you have a little bit of wealth, you have a car, you have a phone, you have everything you really need on, on a material level, but you don't have that inner peace and that mental equal poise. <coughs> and through your practice, that will come. You know that it will come, but you need to have patience and intensity and sincerity. But we want to begin to find ways of invoking greater joy and greater gratitude into our life because we have what so many others actually don't have. And we want to begin to use the fear of death as a motivating force in our practices because it helps us. When we see just how transitory and how impermanent and how short human life really is, it helps us reassess our choices, our, our, our decision-making changes. Because it's very easy to be here in Bali and to be in this loving and supportive environment. But when you have to go home, you have to make some very serious choices. Where to work, how to make money, where to live. You know, what kind of house should I have? Where should I go for a vacation? What should I do with this? So many decisions in the modern age more than ever. So many responsibilities we have and so much decision-making that we're forced to constantly make on the fly with great um, uh, volume and the velocity at which the speed of life constantly forces us to, to make decisions is higher now than ever before. So we want to begin to integrate the understanding that all this work that you're doing now in terms of your spiritual growth is going to impact and needs to impact the rest of your life and sometimes that means making very very strong and important life decisions and you want to do that in such a way that it aligns with your highest values with your highest ideals of perfection for your own life and what we do is we just inspire you to look beyond your normal boundaries and reassess really what's most important to you. And this type of reflection also helps us, um, when we reflect on death in particular, helps eliminate a lot of the laziness, a lot of the lethargy we call tamas, you know, begins to leave us temporarily. And because it's only temporary, we need to reflect on life and death periodically, every six months, once a year. It's very, very good just to do this kind of deep reflection work. This also helps us end procrastination and this feeling that I can postpone all the spiritual stuff and leave it for, for a later time. So let's get right into it.
I'm going to use some traditional Asian motifs as well as some things that are outside that boundaries as well. Now, in Asia, there's this idea of having a perfect human birth. And the qualities of a human, a perfect human birth, are being born in a place where the Dharma can be heard. Now, how you define Dharma is really up to you. It has a, a very universal definition, just simply the path of righteousness, the spiritual journey, the way to liberation, whatever you decide to call it. Just know uh, Dharma is a natural law of the universe that is what takes one from the darkness to the light in whatever way that makes sense to you. So wherever you are, wherever you've been born, if you are in a position to hear the spiritual message, the message of the Dharma, know that that is a very, very fortunate place that you were born in very fortunate conditions. Now, if you weren't born in such a place, then don't fret because in the modern age, it's very, very easy to travel to such a place. Right? Very, very easy for us to travel to places where the Dharma is openly practiced and openly taught. An ideal and a perfect human birth is also said to occur whenever we are born in a place where there are enlightened sages, wise people, where they are openly teaching the Dharma. Because the Dharma, as nice as it is to hear it inside of books, so long as we're getting Dharma only through book knowledge, it may be inspiring, it may be very educating, but only when we see Dharma in action, being lived out in the life of another, can we open ourselves up to the possibility that it's actually possible for ourselves to actually live in such, a, in such great light. So it becomes very important to, on the spiritual journey, begin to keep the company of holy people, enlightened individuals, who are openly teaching the path of Dharma. Now again, if you have not been born in such a place, again, not to worry, you can easily travel to such a place. Some people make very strong life decisions in order to be only in a place, or relocate to a place where such things are, are, are happening. Now, another reason we should be very grateful is that we are born without any physical or mental defects. Some people, due to their karma, are born with missing, you know, faculties. Maybe they can't hear, maybe they can't see, maybe they're deformed in some way, or had a terrible accident whereby they've lost a limb or lost one of their senses, for example. Other people are born with all sorts of mental uh, defects, uh, and mental retardation, uh, autism, things like this, that don't allow them to have the same capacity for discernment and awareness and detachment that we are privileged to have. And the fourth quality is being born with an open mind, free of strong, wrong views. This is a little bit more subjective. In traditional Asian teachings, Asian teachings, the, the basic premise here is that somebody is coming to the Dharma, coming to the spiritual life, with a relatively open mind, without a lot of baggage and without a lot of wrong concepts and wrong ideas about what the spiritual life is. And some of the most important wrong, strong views are considered a disbelief in reincarnation and a disbelief in karma. The second somebody has that disbelief, like a strong disbelief, it's one thing somebody doesn't believe, and they're just like open to maybe exploring. They don't need to believe. Yoga is not about belief. But if they come to the path with that idea, and that idea isn't subject to movement, to, to move in any direction other than the feeling of, I know that this isn't, 
isn't accurate, isn't correct, it becomes very, very difficult for them to make progress in the way that, that we feel progress can be made on the spiritual journey. So those are some of the some. There's many, many others. It would take us days to probably go, go through all of them. But those are some of the important qualities that we should begin to uh, feel great gratitude for. And again, if you have never been born in a place such as this, I was never born in a place where the Dharma could be heard or where a sage lived. But I was fortunate enough that I was able to travel when I was a young man to such places and now live in such a place so that... <coughs> we can enjoy that, that quality of life. Having established that this is what a perfect human rebirth can begin to look like, it gives us a good, good gateway into understanding that in addition to being born as a human being, it's actually quite easy to be born in a non-human form. So, in Eastern philosophy, often there's a lot of uh, discussion about being born in different forms, in animal forms, in lower spirits, and higher spirits, and angelic forms, etc. And not being born in one of the lower realms, which I'm going to discuss in just a little bit, so bear with me, is, is, is a sign of, of great maturity on the spiritual path. And you have a great opportunity to be in a human body compared to being born in one of the lower realms. There's also other lower realms where the abundance of disincarnate spirits that are subjugated to great degrees of suffering, of hunger and thirst. Strong desires are there that make them incredibly hungry, incredibly thirsty, but the conditions of that environment are such that they can never really quench or quell that thirst or that hunger. So they live with this perpetual level of sorrow and suffering due to karma. These experiences are temporal, nothing is permanent. Um, in this cycle of samsara, cycle of, of cyclical existence, but it can happen that we do find ourselves occasionally in one of those realms, and currently we are not in such a realm. It's very easy to be born as an animal within this particular physical realm, and we are very fortunate that we are not in such an animal form, and even though we love animals, and we, and to you know, have animals and keep animals as pets and things like this. For the most part, an animal, because it has no higher faculty of intelligence that can utilize the power of discernment, um, and also doesn't have an energetic body that can sustain kundalini awakening, we don't consider an animal birth very appropriate for, for spiritual maturity. Not impossible, there are very extraordinary stories we hear about in India of great cows and, and certain, you know, monkeys and things like this that have had the capacity to realize the, the self in an animal form. But this is like one in a zillion kind of thing that we hear. For the most part, we find the human birth is the most conductive actually to spiritual growth and, 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 and realization. Because believe it or not, we actually should de devote, uh, generate great enthusiasm and great joy for actually not having been born in what we consider one of the higher realms, where uh, beings exist in angelic forms, in light bodies, in, in, in very, very blissful bodies, where there's so little uh, pain that is experienced there, and the overwhelming sensations of great pleasure. However, because there's such an abundance of pleasure in the higher realms of existence, people, uh, the beings there lose motivation for transcendence. 
There just simply is no desire to experience anything other than this great pleasure that they're experiencing. And this kind of gives a certain haziness, a certain daze to the, to the mind states of even higher beings than ourselves, uh, whereby they lose perspective on the fact that even their existence, as exalted as it may be, is also temporary. And the good karma that took them into that existence will one day fade away and they will need to be born in some sort of lower realm. Now, if all of this is, you know, like, well, what are we talking about? And what does this have to do with meditation? Let's discuss that in a little bit, and I'll give you a different way of understanding this. This is an old Indian model uh, that's been, it's been around on the planet for thousands and thousands of years. There's a belief system in, in, in the Vedic tradition whereby there is a belief that this realm, this physical realm that we currently find ourselves in, where the abundance of life occurs in the physical body, in the physical body of a human, or the physical body of an animal, is simply one of 14 different realms of existence. It's actually considered to be smack dab in the middle of it all. There are six realms above us, and seven realms that are said to be below us. And these realms are correlated to the subtle energy body of the yogi and the yogini, whereby the different chakras, the different energy vortexes, energy center inside of our subtle energy body are correlated to different states of psychological activity, but simultaneously different states of experience that we can have once we leave the physical form that we're currently inhabiting. Now, this is a little bit about what it looks like in terms of a diagram of what, what the yogis had envisioned. And one of the things to note is that in addition to the seven chakras that many of us are familiar with, there are said to be certain energy centers underneath the Muladhara chakra, underneath the first chakra, that exist in the thighs and the knees and the calves and the, in the ankles and the soles and in the, the, the big toe of the, of the feet that correspond to more base levels of experience. And these, whenever our prana, whenever our awareness enters into very, very, very negative states, like really like dark places within the, the field of experience, and the prana has entered into the lower center and is temporarily stuck there. If it stays stuck there for long periods of time and we act, and we think and we speak in ways that are acting out those really selfish desires, those really perverse and deluded and distorted ideas, we will be generating a certain type of karma whereby we will inevitably have to live out the effect of said karma. And at the moment of birth, whatever one of your chakras, higher or lower, that has the most amount of development, that has the greatest amount of opening within it, will be the gateway or the doorway which propels the what we call the jiva or the individual soul into its next existence. If somebody has been living from a deep place of darkness and selfishness and been generating a lot of negative thoughts, negative emotions, negative actions, negative speech for long periods of time, it's possible for them at the moment of death for all of their energy to leave through one of the lower centers and they will be trapped temporarily in one of the lower realms where they will be enduring a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering for as long as that needs to occur. In 
in the symbology of Vedic tradition, these lower states are associated with certain animalistic tendencies, like really dark and base kind of tendencies within us. And in kind of the symbolic coding, uh, we see that in the in the legs, there's all sorts of different animals and different animals, much in the same way like when we're kids in our Western cultures, have certain qualities, like a snake is deceptive, right? And a pig is really greedy. Different, different animals are associated with different psychological traits. The same thing has been mapped out here so that if we understand this kind of uh, encoding system, we begin to get an idea of what mental emotional states correspond to each one of these lower realms. In addition to these lower realms, we also have the higher realms that start in the second chakra and go above. So let me begin to describe those to you. The very, very highest, this, this is actually the same diagram um, as we find it here in Bali. The Balinese had inherited the same system of philosophy as we practice in South India, and they exported it here, and this is the same symbolic coding, basically, um, but in drawn in a more uh, contemporary Balinese motif. Now, all of it originates and is said to um, arise, the entire manifest universe and the multiverse, the various dimensions of existence, have their origin in what is known as nirvana or the satya loka. And it is also synonymous with what we call brahman or the, the absolute reality, the supreme reality. This satya loka, this, this, this realm of truth is purely formless, has no qualities. It is complete, utter stillness and silence and peace, a state of perfect equilibrium where all duality does not, it does not have the ability to, to manifest. It is a state of complete oneness, complete unity. It is this, the word yoga itself, the state of unity, is synonymous with satya loka. And this is actually the ultimate aim of a yogi, to awaken to Brahman or to enter the state of satya, which is absolute truth. And ultimately, this is not only our destination, but it's actually our origin. In many of the creation theories of the yogis, this is the origin of creation, we can say, or the, or the source of creation originated from the unmanifest, from the formless absolute, that which is known as satya, and the realm of truth, this divine, radiant, pure white light that gave birth to entire creation. <coughs> the entire spiritual journey, the soul's journey, is described as a descent from this realm into various grades of manifestation that work their way from the ultra-subtle into the ultra-dense and then there's a return path as it were back to them um, back to the light but this journey isn't just so straightforward in terms of of up and down there's a lot of this that happens along the way and it's actually quite unpredictable how the karma unfolds that propels one into different states of existence Depending on one's karma, these, the chakras that we have within our cell energy body will be in different states of development. And the more well-developed the higher chakras are, the more likely there will be a favorable rebirth once this body passes away. The next realm underneath the Satyaloka, which corresponds to the sixth chakra, what we call Agnya chakra at the level of the third eye, 
is known as Tapa Loka. This is considered to be a luminous realm. Tapas means fire, but what we're talking about here is the, the, the light that is the essence of the fire. This is a place where the unmanifest first becomes manifest, and the first manifestation in the creation, if we are going to talk about it in this way, are of cosmic principles, various natural laws that are deified and given over to the providence of certain divine beings that uh, some people call gods and goddesses, other people call deities, and this realm of gods and goddesses is known as Tapaloka. Within it, enlightened sages can also coexist among the gods, as it were. So a yogi is very, very, very highly developed in the final stages of manifestation within the manifest cosmos, and the final stages of reincarnation they will be born there, and they will coexist with the gods and basically be as a god themselves before merging into the formless nirvana, ultimately. Below that is what is known as Janaloka. This is the wisdom plane. All these three, and also the one below it, are considered realms of enlightenment. If somebody is existing in those realms, they're basically at a certain stage of enlightenment. They're free of sorrow and free of suffering, yet still not beyond the confines of the dualistic paradigm of manifestation, but they are simply no longer subject to pleasure and pain as we're experiencing them. This is a realm where certain enlightened beings, known as siddhas, tend to exist. There's a great flexibility regarding who lives where. This is just a basic guideline. At the level of the heart center, this is known as Mahaloka. These are the realms of the higher heavens. This is where great sages and jnanis, people that have developed self-awareness, that have realized the self, but still have some future, uh, not future, some greater states of realization happen beyond the initial enlightenment. The initial enlightenment is associated with the opening of the heart chakra to its fullest and the awakening of Kundalini to the level of the heart. Once that awakening is happening, it's coming back into a physical embodiment is optional. Some sages decide just to continue on the journey from there. Some, because of the development of great degree of compassion, enter what is known as the stage of a bodhisattva. This is actually a Buddhist term. We don't have such an easy equivalent in, in, in the Vedic tradition, but such beings choose of their own accord, as it were, to come back down into lower realms and serve and to help others elevate themselves into higher states of awareness. This is known as the higher heavens. We then have the realms of unenlightenment. Yeah? So the Swaha Loka are what we consider to be one of the lower heavens. This is the realm of where we find beings such as angels exist and spirit guides. Beings that aren't fully enlightened, but they are living in very, very high and pleasant states of vibration. The dimension they exist in is very, very, very subtle. And in those realms, they are also just like us, trying to find the path, trying to stay on the path, trying to practice the path. But because there's such an abundance of goodness and dharma in their realm, they have more guidance and more clarity than we do. And because of that, they're, they're given to service and to generating good karma by helping elevate other living beings, by removing obstacles, by, by uh, helping people in various ways. Um, 
people meaning beings below them or even at their own level. So there's a lot of selflessness that is involved here. This lower heaven is similar to what many Christians believe to be the ultimate kind of destination, whereby you, you know, um, go to the pearly gates somewhere in a cloudy place, and then they let you in, and then you get to be feel the proximity of God, and you get to feel very close and very near God, and there's no more sorrow, no more suffering. This is a very similar idea. And for us, uh, we also have themes that discuss what happens beyond that experience. Now, the Buraloka is the realm directly above ours. This is known as the astral realm. And here, this is the realm of departed spirits, ancestors, family members, most people that aren't on a spiritual path in, in any conscious way, and yet living a, a peaceful life, a good life, um, you know, dedicated to their friends and families, but they still have very, very strong emotional relationships with others. There's a lot of very strong clinging and there's a lot of grief at the moment of death as family members, you know, feel great loss and great grief because of all their attachments to each other. When we find that people have these strong attachments at the time of death, what ends up happening is their soul travels to the Burloka, the astral realm, and from there they become like spirit guides. They continue to have some connection with the physical beings that were once their friends and family members, and from that realm, as much as they can, they work out their karma by selflessly giving and serving those that were their friends and family, so they act like protector beings. Many of your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your departed relatives have gone to this realm, and from this realm they help you, unknownst to you, unbeknownst to you. Many times they're removing certain obstacles and helping you, so that their karma, their debt to you, for whatever kindness, whatever service you've done to them, can be cleared and they can be free to move on on their own journey. In addition to that, we now have the realm that we're most familiar with. This is what's known as the Burloka. This is the physical realm. It's the realm of humans and animals. We generally consider this, unfortunately, a realm of sorrow and suffering. <laughs> so this is the conventional Eastern model. And we may not like that, it may not be the best news in the world. But because there is such... <laughs> it's terrible news, I know. <coughs> But the wonder of it all is that as much as adverse as we are to suffering, because nobody wants sorrow, nobody wants suffering, it makes an incredible catalyst for growth. If we're experiencing only pleasant things, only comforts, only luxuries, and no troubles, no sorrows, no pain, we would have no motivation to transcend and to experience something which is beyond pleasure and pain. Here, the, the, the interesting thing about our particular experience is that the, the experiences of pleasure and pain are largely co-equal. We experience some pleasure, just enough to make us pursue it and stay in a state of confusion, but equally we experience just enough sorrow, dissatisfaction, difficulty, trauma, difficulties of all sorts that make us feel so dissatisfied that we're looking for an escape, that we're looking for a way out of sorrow way out of suffering. And in this way, suffering becomes such a great teacher for us. It opens the doorway to liberation because so long as we're not challenged, as we're not tested, as it were, we will not seek transcendence. So even though this is a realm of sorrow and suffering, it is actually, because of that very reason, the most opportune place 
to find yourself if you're seeking liberation. Liberation is said to be much more difficult in the higher realms than it is in the human realm. And believe it or not, in all the Asiatic teachings, of which there are plenty, the human birth is considered the most beneficial birth out of all of them, simply because we have a nervous system that is capable of this massive energetic awakening through the Kundalini, as well as a nervous system that has a functional brain that can develop discernment between the real and the unreal, between samsara and nirvana. The, the human condition affords us such a precious opportunity that we actually don't have in the higher realms. So for better or worse, what we find ourselves in now is better. It truly is better. It may be difficult at times, we may not understand why there's so much suffering and so much sorrow, but at the end of the day, this, this precious human life is very, very desirable. Now, below us in the low realms, there's no chance of liberation. Beings that are incarnated there just simply have to work out their negative karmas. There's some positive karmas there, but those positive karmas are largely laying dormant as they experience and have to go through the process of living out the negative karmas. The first realm is known as Atalaloka. It's the lower spirit realm. There's Living beings are there. They're not all... Uh, you know, like malevolent. We consider some of them semi-benign. And this is the realm of mythology that many people around in different world cultures know of. Things like fairies and gnomes and elves and all these mischievous little invisible creatures. This is where they, they exist. They generally are quite selfish, but at times, under the right circumstances, they can act with a little bit of altruistic intent. But for the most part, they're, they're kind of in their own little self-absorbed situations. The realm below that is full of spirit beings, disembodied entities, that are a little bit more destructive. They're consciously seeking to harm others. The next realm, known as Sutalaloka, is the realm of Asuras. These are like more like demonic beings. And in many ancient mythologies, we have this paradigm of, of the demons and the angels constantly battling with each other. Yeah, the angelic beings are in the third higher loka called Swahaloka, whereas these more demonic beings, these more uh, aggressive beings known as Asuras, live in Sutalaloka, the third of the lower realms. And they're the counterparts to the angelic beings, and we find this theme in many world cultures. The next low realm called Talatalaloka is a realm where the ghosts live. There are disembodied spirits that, due to very, very negative karmas, have been endowed with a form that is very, very gruesome. Often in, in Asiatic symbolism, they're depicted as having gruesome body with deformed limbs. And if they're in certain of the realms, they will have a very, very large mouth, but a very, very thin neck, so that no matter how much they're trying to eat because they're so hungry, there's so much pain trying to get all that, all that food going down through their, their throats. Other times they're depicted as having very large mouths, but not having no stomach whatsoever. No matter how much you put in, they cannot find satisfaction. Many, many horrendous kind of forms are there. We also have a lower ghost realm, which is considered to be even worse. 
many people that have been reborn from the hungry ghost realm into human realms, because it's possible for that to happen, actually still have a great abundance of negative karma, and many of them get born in such conditions whereby they are homeless, they don't have access to material goods, and because of this they need to constantly beg for their food. And because of this, many of the people that we see are, that are beggars actually reincarnated hungry ghosts. Now that may be a little bit too stark for some people to accept, so you don't have to accept, but this is largely how it happens. Many of the you know, people born in very terrible conditions, in places like Africa and other places where there's so much poverty and famine even, whereby they do not have an abundance of food, they're just continuing to live on through some of their karmas where they still need to experience that great degree of hunger and sorrow and suffering through the body. It doesn't mean that this is right or wrong or good or bad, it is simply the outcome of their own actions. And even though we can have great sympathy and great sorrow and, and you know great compassion for them, we also have to accept that at a certain stage in our own evolution we were born in such conditions. For you to be born with such privilege now, to have enough food to eat, to you know have access to education, to have wealth, to have access to the Dharma, to be interested in yoga and meditation and spiritual themes in any way, indicate that you have such a great abundance of good karma, that you are so fortunate, yet the, the tides of life work like this. And the likelihood of you once been in one of those lower realms is such that, that you probably were. Now the chances of not returning to such places are, are influenced by the karma of the present, meaning what you're doing now with your energy and your current condition, as well as still by some of your karma of your past. You may still have a lot of negative karma somewhere in the background that you're simply not aware of that, despite the intentions and the noble actions you're doing now, may still attract experiences of sorrow and suffering in the future, both in this form and in the next. And that becomes of utmost importance to us as yogis and meditators. Because one of the great secrets of yoga is that we can purify that karma before it manifests. And through our yoga and meditation practice, like I was saying earlier, let's say we feel some pain in the knee, some pain in the back. This is dark, negative karma that's going on. Anything below here, big trouble. And so long as you're feeling negative sensations here, it means there's negative vibrations here. And because those negative vibrations are there, it can happen that, not necessarily in the next birth, but you know, sometime in the future, those negative karmas, if they're not dealt with, they're not purified in some way, will attract that level of experience in your life. So the great secret of yoga is that we can learn through meditation to change our vibration, to influence the sensations of the body and to elevate our vibration, to purify our karma by simply generating greater degrees of awareness and greater degrees of detachment so that we become completely free from the karma of the past simply by burning our karma through what we call tapas, which is this like great intensity we generate through our meditation practice where we focus the mind so so much and we develop this equanimity, this equilibrium of mind whereby we're not reacting. And whatever is arising is arising and it's passing away, rising and passing away, rising and passing away. We are so fortunate that we have this human mind that can 
see through the illusion of the creation, that we can see through the ebbs and flows of the positive and the negative, the high and the low, that we can begin to develop discernment between that which is unreal and transitory, all these changing thoughts, all these changing emotions, all these changing relationships, all these changing events, all these changing situations of life, and begin to focus the mind upon that which is permanent, that which is not temporary, that within us which is truth, that which within us which is liberated and free and full of silence and peace and tranquility. And the second we recognize that within us, this essential aspect of existence, the ability to simply recognize reality without the filter of the mind dictating whether things are good or things are bad, things are right, things are wrong, things are high, things are low. And we can just perceive everything from this comprehensive, balanced view. This in itself destroys karma. Simply maintaining the proper view upon reality upon life itself and not reacting to any of the impressions, any of the sensations, any of the conditional, mental, emotional conditioning that we're accustomed to is enough to burn karma, it's enough to relinquish our attachment to the past and all the things that we've said and done that were less than ideal that would bind us in the future to experience their negative effects. It's a very, very mystical and, and deep process. It's a vibrational kind of alchemy that's going on as you meditate more and more, as your mind becomes more and more still and more and more silence. The vibration of your body actually changes because these realms are vibrational, the chakras are vibrational. And the more you meditate, the more your vibration raises. And as your vibration raises, all those negative vibrations need to go somewhere because they can't keep with you as you go higher and higher and higher and higher. And all those darker things eventually will need to get processed. The general trajectory of meditation is from the gross to the subtle. So even this plays out even in our short seven-day meditation retreat. Usually the first one or two days, energy's a little bit dense, everyone's a little bit stuck, some difficulties are there, and some of the more gross aspects of the mind are unraveling. Sometimes you're sitting here and you're processing some trauma or some negative memory or some relationship problem or some, some you know, <coughs> something that makes you afraid or anxious or you're just going through a lot of fear and possibly a lot of anger. <laughs> that manifests as agitation, frustration, restlessness within yourself. But slowly, slowly, day after day, day after day, you'll begin to notice that those mind states begin to leave you. And the vibrations of the body, the subtle body, begins to increase. And then those negative afflictions won't come so strongly anymore. They may still be there, but they don't come with the same intensity of negativity as they do on the first and the second day. So just give the process time and patience. And then from there, we'll, we'll allow the higher teachings of yoga to, to manifest. Below this, we're not even going to talk about it, but there's, there's what we call hell realms, and then even lower hell realms. This is where, where hell beings exist, and th places like this are very undesirable. Very, very undesirable, to say the least. So having gone through this, before I leave you, to not leave you on such a stark note, Let's take a little bit of this, and if we can integrate a little bit of this, let's begin to understand just how rare and precious the opportunity we have right now is. Human birth is not guaranteed. The whole cycle of reincarnation does not have it that just because you're human now, 
you'll be a human later. The chances of actually being a human in your next birth is very, sl- very slim. Very, very low. The chance of being born in a higher or a lower realm is quite high. It doesn't work in, in an upward progression. There's a lot of variation that happens in between. It is said that in our particular world system, which is an old kind of Eastern motif, the greatest number of living beings actually exist in the lower realms, fewer in the animal realm and even fewer in the human realm. And even though we may not think of life in this way, if we just simply observe what's happening in the physical plane, you know, how many, mil- how many billion people are we on the planet? About seven billion human beings? But how many animals are there? You know, billions of cows, billions of pigs. And when you start looking down into smaller life forms, how many insects, how many ants, how many jivas, how many souls are, are finding themselves in insect bodies or bird bodies or uh, uh, um, animal bodies that live in water, fishes and things like this. So many, bazillions, I don't know if trillions is even enough to capture just how much life exists on planet Earth that is not in a human form. And because of the vibration of our particular solar system, there's a lot of life that isn't physical, that is actually in our particular solar system, our particular galaxy, um, is stuck in some of the lower realms. Of those of us born in a human realm, very few of us have access to a perfect human rebirth. And we talked about a perfect human rebirth earlier. Somebody that basically has access to the Dharma in some way or another. You know, places like China, places like Africa, even places in South America, and very hard to find the teachings. Very, very hard. In some places, the teachings are completely uh, closed off, and people have great antagonism towards them. The, the Dharma used to be very much alive in Tibet only 50 years ago. But now if we go to Tibet, you know, you can't even openly practice. There, there's been such pressure on the people there to renounce and to, to, to forget their ancient ways. You can get imprisoned even if you're openly practicing or teaching or, or discussing the Dharma there. It's all done in secret now. Of those that find the path, most people, if they are close to a human, a perfect human rebirth, very people are just simply content with developing a little bit of inner peace. They feel some sorrow, some suffering, they come to meditation, they feel relief, <coughs> their problems go away, and then they're, they're satisfied and they continue along the journey of just trying to have as much pleasure as possible and relieve as much pain as possible. Fewer people will actually pursue the teachings with intensity, fewer will develop a daily practice, and very few amongst us will actually have deep realizations. Of those of us with a perfect human rebirth, very few will make an effort to understand the Dharma. Fewer practice with intensity, fewer that will enter into samadhi, and fewer that will realize nirvana. And even though these are a little bit of stark points to mention, we're simply mentioning these things to help you frame your life and to begin to see the value of your life and the opportunity of your life and to help you structure your life and to start making decisions intelligent, educated decisions around what's really going on, the condition you're really finding yourself in, and how to best make use of your situation. So this is, I often call these, this set of teachings, the great shake-up. It's like somebody's there in a slumber and you take them and you're like, 
wake up. You need to get your scene together because most people are just living in this daydream of life. They're just sleepwalking through their life, completely oblivious to why they're here and the great opportunity they have at hand. And sometimes we need a little bit of shaking. This shaking is also not so easy because if you're taking it seriously in any way and these aren't just like fluffy words for you, you're going to realize, oh man, I got some, I got some changes I need to make in my life. Yeah. So some decisions are going to be very, very, very important in the impending future regarding how it is that you wish to live your life in order to promote those things that align to your own highest ideals of perfection for yourself. So sometimes this creates a, this set of teachings in particular creates a lot of havoc after the retreat. Right now it's all good. <laughs> But once you go home, and if you reflect on this just a little bit, or even you're reflecting now on this memory of what you're reflecting on will exist when you go back home and you have all these decisions, responsibilities, etc. You're going to have to make some very, very serious changes if you want to devote yourself to that which is most important. So having said that, and having shaken things up a little bit, I'm going to let you, yeah, I'm going to let you take that element. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash drops of nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.